Thank you for tuning in to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. To keep connected with us, follow us on Instagram, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and join our Calvary Connection. The vision of our church is to make Jesus famous. When Jesus is famous, everything changes, and he becomes our passion because his love is better than life. Today's message is from our monthly growth nights that are on the first Sunday of every month at 5.30 p.m. Christina Holdridge teaches about being Jesus' famous women. Enjoy. Well, I hope you all had a good weekend. It felt like there was like lots of graduation-y things this weekend. I don't know if any of you were doing graduations. My youngest daughter graduated eighth grade. So that was our celebration. I have all high schoolers or college students at our house now. So that was a big deal. Fun. Um, But anyway, thanks for coming. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad to be here. Um, I'm just going to get into it. So um, do you guys know what this is? Anybody know what this is? Do you guys know? Yeah. Okay. Maybe, maybe not. Some of you might know. Okay. What it is, maybe if I turn it this way, it's still a little bit of a mystery, but um, yeah, it's an avocado. Like it, this part depits the avocado over here and this part scoops and slices and this part like slices it in half. So is, I had a friend who gave it to me. Is she here? No, I don't know if she is. Oh, she is here. Yeah. (laughs) I had a friend who gave this to me. And there's a funny little story. I'll tell you the story about why she gave it to me. But I feel like at first glance, maybe a lot of you didn't know what it was. And I did know what it was because of the story I'm about to tell you. But if if the story hadn't happened, I feel like at first glance, I wouldn't have exactly known what to use that for. So the story is that my friend Chesley gave that to me because about a year ago last May, um... I was making dinner and I was in a hurry and I was de-pitting and slicing up avocados and I was doing it the way I always do it, which is I hold the half of an avocado in one hand and hold a knife in the other and I smack the pit. (laughs) Can you get where this is going? So I was doing that, but I was in a hurry and I smacked the pit to, you know, get the knife stuck and pull the pit out, but the knife slipped on the pit and it sliced my hand really bad. So then I ended up in the ER and I got stitches and then I ended up getting surgery on my hand a week later because I had actually severed a nerve. I know, sad. And this, to this day, this finger still just doesn't work right. So get one of these. (laughs) Um, That's why my good friend uh, gave it to me. So now you can see why someone would give it to me, of course. Injury-free avocado slicing right here. Now, the story, like I said, that's not really my point. My point is, without the backstory, if someone had given this to me, it might have taken me a minute, maybe, at least, to figure out what it was, what it's made for. Maybe I would have tried, like, beating eggs with this side or something. I don't know. But now that I know what it's made for, well, and now I've used it for the reason that it's made, it works amazing. It's great. So the point I'm trying to make is, When you know what something is for, when you know what something is made for, then you know how to use it best. Okay, so the same is true for marriage. Uh, Colossians 1.16 says this, For by him, it's talking about Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities or powers, all things were created through him and all things were created for him. 
everything was created by God, but everything was created for God, for his glory. The supreme purpose of everything God made is to glorify him, and that includes marriage. It was created by God, it was created for his glory. And even our theme tonight, if you haven't heard it already, it's Jesus' famous women embrace Christ's vision for marriage. And in one sense, Colossians 1.16, it, that, it defines it right there for us. God's vision for any marriage, for your marriage, if you're married tonight, his vision is that it would bring him great glory. Now there is a little bit more to it than that, but ultimately, Marriages were made to show off God's greatness, his beauty, his truth, his goodness, to testify of him, to bring him glory. And I'm sure the natural question popping up in all your minds like it is mine is how? Because we all know that inside the walls of our homes or the people that we know, well, marriages are a little bit messy, right? After all, we're talking about two people with a deeply ingrained sin nature, trying to do life, all of life together. It's not always cute. So how does marriage bring glory to God? Okay, I want you to think about this with me for a minute. In the Bible, there's this running theme from the front of the Bible to all the way to the back. There's this running theme of creation, fall, and then redemption. Here's a great explanation of it by one author. He says, when we look at anything, tangible or intangible in this world, we can know three things about it. First, it's part of God's good creation. Yet, second, it's fallen and affected by sin, distorted somehow, broken, falling short of its original purpose. But third, it is being and can be redeemed. The purpose of God is to wipe all creation clean of the effects of sin until it's restored to wholeness and beauty and glory. So, Great quote, God creates things, sin gets in the way of their intended design, but God, through Jesus, he redeems things back so they can fulfill their original purpose. And don't you see how marriage can fit into that paradigm? Like in the garden, God created marriage before sin ever came into the world. He created it, he created it and it was made to glorify him. That's the creation part. And then you know the story. Adam and Eve sinned, right? And immediately the fallout was this. Genesis 3.16, it says, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. This continuous battle between a husband and a wife. There it is, the fall. Sin got in the, on, in the way of God's intended purpose. But Jesus, Jesus, by his death and resurrection, he made it possible for men and women to no longer be slaves of sin, but to be slaves of righteousness. He made us dead to sin and alive to God. So because of that, our marriages can be redeemed, restored back to their original purpose. And of course, as a note, I just wanna say and make clear, everybody knows, before we dive in, marriage is not the only way to glorify God. If you're single tonight, you can glorify God. If you're widowed or divorced, of course, you can use your lives to testify about God's goodness and beauty and truth and greatness. You can show off God's glory in any stage of your life. But just like last month, we were talking about how to use our bodies to glorify God. Tonight, we're gonna look at how to live out God's design for marriage and how that will bring him glory. Not because marriage is the most important thing, but because glorifying God is. And so we need to learn how to do that. 
So if you're married, tune in to see what God's purposes are for your marriage. What did he make marriage for? Then you can see it properly and you can see how he can redeem it over time to come back to what he meant it to be. And if you're not married, you can tune in too because you can know what marriage is actually for because I don't think that the culture around us is doing a very great job of explaining it, but you can see what God designed marriage to be and understand that and see it properly and for your own life or even for the people around you. Okay, so tonight we're gonna plant ourselves in Genesis Chapter two, verse 18, okay? We're gonna see the creation account right there. You can go there in your Bibles. And we're gonna look at what did God make marriage for? And because like my super cool avocado tool, when you know what something is made for, you can use it best, we're gonna see what marriage was made for. So turn there in your Bible. If you look at everything before Genesis 2:18 in the Bible, it's just an account of, of creation, the sun, the moon, the stars, all the things. And, and every time God made something, you probably know this. What did he say at the end of it? He said, it was good, right? And then we get to verse 18 in chapter two. And this is what it says. The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. That's all we're gonna study tonight. That's all we're gonna study. From that one simple verse, God shows us three intended designs for marriage. First, that marriage was made to glorify him. And second, that marriage was made to form a deep community. And third, that marriage was made for two people to help each other. We're gonna look at each topic individually, but as we do, we're also gonna look at that creation, fall, redemption thing. We're gonna see God's intended purpose, how our sin gets in the way, but how Jesus can redeem it to back to its original design. Okay, so let's dig in. All right, point number one, marriage was made to glorify God. I know we already touched on that a little bit, but let's get into it specifically. In one sense, there's the big picture of marriage, okay? Um, it's, in one sense, the big picture of marriage is a covenant relationship that puts on display the covenant relationship that God has with us. And in that way, it glorifies him. Okay, so marriage is a covenant relationship. What that means is it's a binding, lifelong promise between two people to remain exclusively, faithfully committed to each other, no matter what. And as many have pointed out, it's not like a contractual relationship. A contractual relationship, that's where it's like, if you fulfill your part, then I'll do my part, and then and only then can this relationship continue. No. It's a covenant relationship. It's a promise to stick with the other person, whether they make you happy or not. Whether you like them in 10 years or you don't. Whether they love you according to your love language or not, whether they understand you or not, whether they fulfill you or not in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, till death do you part, it's a promise to stay married no matter what. In scripture, God has a covenant relationship with his people. He stays so faithfully committed to us no matter what that scripture says even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. In the Old Testament, God described himself as a husband 
to the children of Israel in a special kind of covenant relationship. And in the New Testament, as Christians, we're described as the bride of Christ, right? Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, it says this. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I'm speaking of Christ and the church. So just like a husband and a wife become one flesh, Jesus becomes one with his bride. John Piper described it like this. He said, Christ obtained the church by his blood and he formed a new covenant with her, an unbreakable marriage. And therefore the marriage relationship between a husband and wife puts on display the covenant relationship of Christ and the church. So that's marriage in one sense, a big picture. It shows off God's covenant relationship with us. It brings him glory to show his unending commitment to his people through our faithfulness to our marriages. Now, I don't mean to say that any of us are ever going to live up to the standard of love or the purity of commitment that Jesus has for us in our marriages. His is unmatchable, wouldn't you say? His love is so pure. We were running away from him and he gave up his life to have us. We didn't even want him and he laid down his own life to have us. His commitment is so strong that in places like Hebrews 13:5 and Deuteronomy 31:6, they tell us he will never leave us or forsake us. That's his love and commitment to us. They far surpass any marriage relationship that has ever existed. Jesus wins the greatest of all time award there. But Jesus also doesn't just exemplify commitment and love, he can help us keep our covenant with our husbands. Because our sin, it can, and it does get in the way of staying faithful. I believe that at the core of all adultery and divorce, there's selfishness, at least on one person's part. Selfishness, that deeply embedded sin that says, I'm more important than someone else. My wants my desires, my needs, my hopes. I have a right to have those fulfilled. I have a right, even if it's at the expense of someone else. But Jesus, he laid down his rights. He laid down himself completely for my, my sake. He denied his rights so that we could be with him forever. So as we've talked about so often in our times together, there are two beautiful things among others that the gospel does for us. One, it gives us power over sin. And two, it gives us a new heart, new desires. So because of the gospel, you and I are now actually able to not be selfish. I mean, I'm not saying we're gonna, not, we're gonna do that perfectly, but we're actually able to not be selfish in our marriages. We have access to the power and the, and the ability to say, no to selfish desires, even the ones that would keep us from being faithful or committed to our husbands. And over time, you can get stronger and stronger because of what Jesus did on the cross at saying no to that deep impulse of selfishness. And this part, it will never cease to blow me, not blow me away. Selfish feelings can change. You can actually feel different. Jesus gives us a new heart, you guys, so that as you follow him, you actually begin to feel what he exemplified for us, that others 
really are more important than yourself. The gospel of Jesus can help us to stay committed to our husbands so that that big picture of God's covenant love and commitment to us, it really can be shown off in our marriages. That's the big picture. But there's like a thousand ways that our marriages can glorify God too. There's a thousand ways in the way we speak to one another, in the way we talk about each other, in the way we handle conflict or we handle our finances, in the way we spend our time, in the way we protect our intimacy. There's literally more than a thousand ways that your daily married life could glorify God. But in order to do any of that, there are two things that you have to prioritize in your marriage, loving God and pursuing sanctification. So we're gonna talk about those things for a minute. I cannot think of anything more essential to a healthy marriage than that each individual would love the Lord their God with all their heart and with all their soul and with all their mind and with all their strength. And we shouldn't try to love God so that we'll have a healthy marriage. No, he is so amazing. He's totally worth our love. But it is true that if we love him, first, and if we love him most, our marriages will be healthier. Do you remember that quote from last month's teaching? I'll give it to you again. It, it, it said this, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And if the purpose of marriage is to glorify God first, then we'll bring him the greatest glory in our marriages when we love him more than anything else. So as we learn about him and we deepen in our relationship with him, we're gonna love him more and we're gonna be more satisfied with him and he will be more glorified. It's like eating a meal of God's goodness and then showing off to everybody how satisfying, how satiating he really is. And of course, no husband can ever do that for us. So as we love God first, because he deserves it, an added bonus is that your marriage really will become healthier. In part, it becomes healthier because we honestly have a little bit more realistic expectations of our husbands. And we're not so easily angered or threatened by their weaknesses or their failures because our security and our identity they come from knowing and loving God first. So practically speaking, what are some ways that this might look? Well, as wives, because I'm talking to wives, we develop strong and consistent devotional lives ourselves. And then we make room for and we support, and I'm not saying we nag and mother, we make room for and we support our husbands when they try to do the same. Next, we make of first importance the things that would grow our love for God. That's books and teachings and good friendships and church and small groups. And we make room for and we support, not nag and mother, our husbands when they seek to do the same. These are the kinds of things, not the only things, but the kinds of things that increase our love, our satisfaction with God. Okay, so second, we said in order um, for God to gl be glorified in our marriage, we can pursue sanctification. So what do I mean by that? Well, sanctification is God's process of changing us over time to look a little bit more like him. It's his process of chipping away at the old sinful me 
and drawing out the new and redeemed me. And as I and you, as we allow this process in our lives, as we even chase after it, invite it, God's greatness is shown off in our life and in our marriage. Listen to this, sanctification, it's what changes us from being short-tempered and easily angered to slow to speak and patient women with our husbands. Sanctification can change us from going to, uh, change us to go from controlling and nagging to trusting and encouraging wives. Sanctification can make a wife who spends too much money become content and self-controlled and able to live within a budget. Sanctification can make a wife who is too stingy and saves too much become open-handed and generous and giving. It can make a wife whose children are the center of her universe, who finds all her real happiness with them, become a woman who sees her husband as her greatest joy outside of Jesus. Guys, we need that work of sanctification. We need it because it makes us more like Jesus in our marriage and it brings some glory. So practically speaking, how? What do we do? Well, we invite God to inspect us. We just keep inviting him in. We say, God, search me, try me, know me. We invite conviction regularly. And when we do, and God shows us stuff that he wants to change in us, we confess it. And then we bring that confession maybe even to our husbands because it's better a little bit more out in the light. And then we ask God, listen to this one, we ask God to make us women of grace and forgiveness and patience so that our husbands can do the same. We create that culture of grace and forgiveness in our home so our husbands can confess their sin to us. And then finally, we maintain such a steady relationship with God through his word so that all that sanctification, it's seen through the right lens, not through legalism or weird stuff like that, but through the beautiful lens of God's love and grace and nothing else. And of course, our sin can definitely get in the way of our love for God or our pursuit of sanctification. I mean, it's easy. It's natural to fall into loving other things more than him. It's easy and natural to grow content with where we're at in life rather than invite conviction and growth. Who wants that? But Jesus wants to redeem those hearts of ours, and he can. He actually created us to love him first and most. That was his intention. He made us his kids in part to welcome and invite his discipline as loving and good. And so the cross makes it all possible. Jesus paid the price already for our lack of love, our lack of zeal. He died and he rose so we can grow in both these areas and so can our husbands too. So to wrap this whole point up, in the beginning, God made marriage to glorify him. And by Jesus's help, we can. We can keep our covenant and be faithfully committed to our husbands. We can love God first and most. We can pursue his sanctification in our lives so that our marriages can testify of God's greatness. All right, there's three points. So hang in there with me. We've got point number two, God made marriage. What was its intended purpose? To form a deep community. If you go back to Genesis 2.18, it said that, um, I'm gonna go back there. I meant to read it. I write it in my notes. Shoot. 
Oh, well. If you go back there, you'll see it in there. <laughs> um, we, uh, oh, here it is. God decided it was not good for Adam and Eve to be alone. Oh, that's not too hard, right? God decided Adam, it was not good for Adam and Eve to be alone. So he formed a deep community. Together, they formed the deepest human relationship possible by God's design. And in Song of Solomon, I love this description of marriage. The Shulamite woman says of her husband, this is my beloved, this is my friend. So with this verse in mind, we're gonna look at two aspects of deep community in marriage, friendship and sexuality. Both are part of God's purpose and design for marriage. I think it's so reflective of God's nature that he would care about our aloneness that he would care about it so much that he would want to do something about it. Sometimes, maybe because we're immersed in our Western culture where like independence is one of the chief values, sometimes I think we really undervalue friendship and deep community. But here in Genesis, God does not. God doesn't think of friendship as like a bonus to life like I do. He doesn't say, eh, you know, Adam's fine, he can make it on his own, but you know, why don't I give him a special little buddy just to make life a little better? No, Genesis 2.18 is a stark contrast to everything God made at this point, and he said it was not good to be alone. This is not just an added bonus to be in deep community. God's saying it's essential, it is not good for us to be alone in life. And so if you're married tonight, I'm gonna to encourage you to find your first friend, find your best friend in your spouse. And I know that that's not always easy. I realize that some of you might be struggling just to stay married, let alone see your husband as your best friend. And I realize that for some of you, girlfriends have always held that place in your life. Husbands are more like teammates. Girlfriends are the relationships, the friendships that you might really invest in. And you don't really want to replace that with your husband. And I'm not encouraging you to. I'm not encouraging you to have no girlfriends. And I do realize that being best friends with a husband is not always easy. But remember, creation, then the fall, but redemption if God's purpose in marriage is to form a deep community in part through friendship, then Jesus can take marriages wherever they are right now in that friendship area, and he can inch them forward to look more and more like his intended design. So what are some ways to pursue friendship in marriage? Two categories come to mind. First, to experience growing friendship in marriage, we should try. Since I'm speaking just to you wives, I'm trying to speak to you specifically about your part in this. And I know, ideally, both people are going to make friendship a priority in marriage. But what, what can you do? Well, to the best of your ability, make time. All friendships require time. And if there's not focused time, not a lot of friendship will happen. Many of us have other non-negotiable things in our lives. Chopping working out, work, church, other commitments. But do we intentionally set aside time to spend as friends with our husband? Again, if we treat this like an added bonus, like if it happens, great, then we're not gonna grow or deepen in our relationship. I think we need to rethink that mindset. So make time, protect time with your husband. Maybe 
you try a weekly date night. Maybe you look over the calendar, you plan ahead where once the kids go to bed, we're gonna connect on these nights. But it is essential for you to have some time together consistently. Second, to be a friend with your husband, don't just make time, but talk and then listen. Okay, here's one. Don't allow passive consumption of TV to take over all your time. I get it, shows, movies, it's a fun way to enjoy doing something together, but you are not gonna form and grow and deepen in your friendship if the majority of your spent time is spent that way. So what if after the kids go to bed, you don't turn on the TV sometimes? What if you just make a cup of tea and turn on some music and look each other in the face and actually have a conversation? What if you are self-revealing? What if you share from your heart what you're worried about, what you're hoping for, where you're struggling, what you're reading, what you're learning? What if you're self-revealing? But also, listen. Be patient and kind and compassionate and gentle when your husband is speaking. Because it can be our tendency to respond quickly to their words with advice or judgment or even criticism. And when we do this, they are going to be way less likely to share and open up with us. So be a friend. Listen. And secondly, to experience growing friendship in our marriage. I think we need to be a friend first. You know, Proverbs 18, 24, it teaches that in order to have a friend, you have to be a friend. Well, I realize that it can be challenging in marriage. Not, it's not like marriage or friendship in marriage is the only dynamic going on, right? There are so many elements. There's time and schedules and money and the future and parenting or taking care of older parents and there's romance and there's sex. There are so many parts of marriage. And often in general, wives can end up being these controlling kind of motherly figures in a marriage instead of friends, so what can you do about that? What can you do to be a friend to your husband? Learn about him. Still, no matter how long you've been married, study him, pay attention to him, ask him questions about himself. Find out his Enneagram or his Myers-Briggs or some other personality profile. Not, hear me on this, not as a weapon for pointing out his weaknesses, but as a tool to better understand who he is, how he thinks. This was a game changer for me in my marriage. For the first kind of eight years or so, there were things about Nate that I just kind of tried to patiently tolerate. And then we'd get in this cycle. I would try to patiently tolerate things that for me were confusing or annoying or hurtful. And then We'd have this cycle because I'd bring up my hurt feelings and didn't he know because the last 10 times he did this, it hurt my feelings the last 10 times and then he'd feel bad and then he'd apologize and then we'd move on and we would just do this cycle and um, it just kind of stirred up resentment in me, a general feeling of like, ugh, I just don't like who you are in these areas and like, you know it, so why can't you change? 
And then I did some personality profiling, and I know, okay, if you're here tonight and you're weird about those things, just listen. I know that they are not scripture, and I know that God does not create robots that are confined to these little nine or 16 or 32 exclusive personality types. I totally know that, but they can be helpful tools. So for me, when I did that, well, I learned about Nate in this way that gave me so much understanding to just who he is naturally, how he's wired to think and feel. And it was just so helpful. It didn't excuse bad behavior. It didn't make things that hurt me not hurt me, but it did give me compassion. And it gave me an appreciation for who he is. Like on one hand, it helped me see with fresh eyes the great things about him. And on the other hand, it helped me to take a whole lot less personally his weaknesses to just be a whole lot more patient with them. So learn about your husbands. Be a friend also who's willing to put the other person first. Be willing to give, but not receive. Be willing to understand, but not be understood. Be willing to love without getting loved in return. And all the while you do these things, don't keep a tally of how often you are as opposed to your husband. Real love. Real friendship, it doesn't seek its own. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 says. And finally, to be a friend to your husband. We ought to seek, we ought to try to believe the best about them. 1 Corinthians 13 also says that. It says love believes all things. So instead of jumping to conclusions. Instead of deciding wrong motives ahead of time, instead of assuming the worst, be the friend to your husband that believes the best about their heart, about their intentions and their motives, even when actions are frustrating or hurtful or insensitive. Well, are you overwhelmed yet? (laughs) The task of friendship, it's like impossible, right? It's pretty clear where any of our sin can get in the way. Pride, Selfishness, independence, lack of love or concern, laziness, impatience, all of those things can just get in the way of God's intention that inside our marriages, we would be great friends. But Jesus, Jesus is the friend, the Bible says, that sticks closer than a brother. Jesus even calls us friends in John 15, 15. And Jesus He's the perfect friend. He's always available to us, willing to listen to us, totally understands us in every way, laid down his life for our good. Jesus is our perfect friend. So if you're feeling lonely or let down in your friendships, whether you're married or single tonight, turn to Jesus first. He is really the best friend you'll ever have. But also, I'm just gonna keep playing this drum, this uh, guitar string tonight, Jesus's death and resurrection, the gospel, that's what makes it possible for us to increasingly become that kind of friend to our husbands, the kind of friend that listens, the kind of friend that gives without needing to be given to. And God can do that in our husbands too. So that over time, we can increase in our friendship and reflect that that beautiful thing that God designed. All right, God's design for marriage in com- that deep community, it also includes sex. Genesis 2.24 says uh, that a husband, when a husband and a wife marry, the two become one flesh. 
So the two becoming one flesh, that's talking about more than sex, but it is talking about sex. God created sex for marriage. If you've ever read the Song of Solomon, you will discover that God's intention for sex was sexy, passionate, romantic, exciting, edifying to both the husband and the wife. He definitely didn't design it to be some obligatory routine for married couples so husbands would be happy or the couple would have kids. No, it's my strong conviction that from scripture, God created sex in our marriages as a gift. It is meant to bring about the amazing gift of kids, but also it's a gift to the husband and the wife for pleasure and excitement and intimacy. And as we talk about this, I totally realize it's a very loaded topic because all of us have lived in this culture and we've had experiences um, with this subject so that we all come to it with some kind of brokenness. We have wrong thinking, we have wrong behaviors, (coughs) excuse me, wrong things have been done to us. But tonight, I just wanna focus on God's design. (coughs) Excuse me. I have a little tickle. <coughs> Not like that one time. Um, tonight, I just want to focus on God's design, his intentions, his original purpose for sex and marriage. And so while I know we're all coming from different places and we might even need to pursue healing in this area, tonight we're just going to focus on how can we embrace... Oh, <laughs> thanks, Nicole. No, it's open. I'm fine. I'm fine. She's, um, they're grabbing some for me. Okay, so tonight we're just going to focus on embracing sex as the gift that God intended. And if it's an area of pain or difficulty for you, I really want to encourage you. Don't be ashamed of that. Please just seek out good, wise, godly counsel and godly resources so that eventually in this area of your life, you could experience it maybe just a little bit more like God intended it. So in general, what can we do in our marriages to experience sex as a gift? Well, first, I'm just gonna be really plain speaking here. We need to protect it. If someone gave me a beautiful car, expensive and gorgeous, the first thing I think I would think, thank you so much. No, don't worry, it's my job. The first thing I would do is want to protect it. I would think, how in the world can I protect this thing? I would get it insured. I would be driving it super careful. I'd probably cover it while I wasn't driving it. I would get tune-ups. I would park the car far away so no one would open their door and ding it. In order to continually enjoy the beauty of the gift, I would need to protect it. Well, the same is true for sex. To experience it in your marriages as a good thing, as a gift, you really do need to protect it. Practically, here's some ways. I'm not trying to be crass, but don't watch sex on screens, okay? Just honestly watching other people, whether it's TV or movies and obviously pornography, it's just not okay. It stirs up lust, but it also creates expectations of what it's supposed to be like for you. The expression of your sexual relationship should come to you and your husband with no outside influences. Don't watch sex on screens. Don't read sex in books. 
I'm not talking about helpful Christian books on the subject. I'm talking about pretty much literature. Don't excuse that kind of content for the sake of a good book. It does the same thing as the screens. It stirs up lust. It creates a picture in our mind that's generally, usually unrealistic, unfair, impossible to regularly live up to. The expression of your sexual relationship, it should be cultivated by you and your husband alone. Not the stuff you read and not the stuff you watch. And then finally, another way to protect your relationship in your, in your marriage, don't excuse any kind of deepening, deepening relationship with another man. I am not trying to make you weird or paranoid about men. In God's estimation, they are totally our brothers. But we do need to pay attention, okay? We need to be just careful. So we need to pay attention when like a joke turns into flirting or when smiles turn into longer looks, or when a work conversation takes a turn to a more personal and deep connection. We have to pay attention to that stuff and watch out for it. We have to watch out for ourselves looking for attention or affection or praise from anybody besides our husbands. So to experience sex as a gift, we've got to protect it. But also to experience sex as a gift, we've got to use it. Again, if I had a beautiful and expensive car as a gift, but I never drove it, well, what would be the point? I'm not trying to be overly simplistic, okay? It is a key component, though. To experience the gift, we actually have to use it. If we're always too tired, we're always overbooked, if we're always on different schedules, how can we use the gift that God gave us? We're not going to be able to progress in understanding each other or pleasing each other or growing in freedom with each other, enjoying each other if we're not often intimate with each other. So what can we do about it? Well, you can talk about it with your spouse and maybe even make a plan for it. You can do the little things throughout your day to prepare yourself physically and mentally a little bit more ahead of time so that sex can be a little more enjoyable for you. You can do what you do in other areas of your life where you make things a priority. Just don't let this part of your marriage go. Again, please hear me. I am definitely not trying to be overly simplistic because I don't think that if you just protect your intimacy and you plan for it, then wham, all of a sudden there's gonna be weekly, passionate, amazing sex till death do you part. I realize it's far more complex than that. But I'm trying to say that this is sort of the starting point. This is the foundation. If we see sex as a good gift, if we use it often in our marriage, if we protect it, that's a starting place from, from which we can kind of launch into that deep community experience with our husbands. And of course, uh, our sin can get in the way here, right? God designed it as a good gift to draw you closer to your husband, but... Our husband's sin, sin committed against us, our sin, sin we had in the past, all of it can get in the way. But as we've seen again and again tonight, Jesus can redeem this area of our marriage. Jesus, he died to rescue us from our sin, to separate it from us as far as the east is from the west. Jesus is always praying for us, scripture says. He's always making intercession for us. He can help in this area. So past sin, even current sin, your husband's sin, the sin done against you, it doesn't have to have the final say 
in your intimacy. By his blood and grace, Jesus can take what is dead and raise it back to life. He can take what is broken and heal it. And even though the redemption process is definitely not overnight, it is possible. So I want you guys to have hope that Jesus can heal and grow your intimacy and marriage to better reflect what he originally meant for it to be. All right, that's our whole second point. Now we've gotten to the third, our third and final point. We looked at how marriage, God made marriage to glorify himself, and we looked at how God made marriage to form that deep community. Our last point is that God made marriage for two people to help each other. Genesis 2.18, it said, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And I believe that when husbands and wives operate in their God-given roles, helping each other, they are practically serving one another and helping each other in life, but ultimately, they're helping each other become more fully who God meant for them to be. So, Ephesians 5, through 25, it says this, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And the passage goes on with a lot more instructions to the husband, but it's just wives in here, so we're going to stop. But these verses, along with passages in Colossians 3 and 1 Peter 3, they all talk about the specific roles that God gave to marriage for a husband and for a wife. In his design, God made men to lead and women to follow. Sometimes it's called headship and submission. Now, For many of us, the idea of a follower and a leader in marriage is outdated, male-centric, unfair, even abusive, and it definitely cannot be taken seriously. And unfortunately, over and over again, that belief gets given credibility because people misunderstand these verses and they misuse them and they do control and put down and abuse women. Terrible, terrible things have been done with these verses as validation. But nothing could be further from the heart of God. Nothing. Remember, the whole point of our time tonight is to look at what God originally intended and to acknowledge how our sin gets in the way, but to see how we can put our hope in Jesus and his redeeming work to get back to that original design. And I'm here to tell you guys that God's original design for roles in marriage, it was good. It was good. He was not intending to put women down, to minimize them, to minimize their importance, to control them, to hurt them. His intention was to create this one flesh unit where the wife would lovingly submit herself to her husband's leadership while the husband was constantly abandoning his own desires and sacrificially loving and leading his wife. And this could be beautiful. Because God really intended for both these roles to be roles where one would serve the other. The wife serves the husband by supporting and following his leadership. But the husband is serving his wife by denying himself, loving her, and leading her in a sacrificial way. 
Both are occasions for one to serve the other. And a beautiful thing to consider is that both roles are equally respectable and honorable and valuable because Jesus fulfilled them both. He lived out perfect and beautiful submission to his father all the way to the cross, even while he was the creator of the universe, right? But also, Jesus lovingly and sacrificially led his disciples. And do you know what he taught them? He taught them that leadership was not about being served, but about serving. Jesus showed the beauty and the servant nature of both roles. So what does it look like to follow or to submit? How could we help our husbands by doing this? Well, the truth is that the Bible does not give super, super specifics on what this looks like. It leaves room for couples to define a lot of this area for themselves, maybe according to gifting or temperament. But here are some ways that I personally would like to encourage you. This, these are some of my truths about how to follow or support your husband. Okay, number one, being more encouraging and more supportive. Leading is a scary and vulnerable job no matter what your husband's personality is. This role requires them to have ultimate decisions and be ultimately responsible if those decisions don't turn out well. But when a husband senses that his wife is on his side and by his side, that he has her support, <coughs> excuse me, and even her trust so that when things don't go perfect or do, man, that is just so meaningful. I want you to remember that men are not called to lead because they're more capable of leading. They're not called to lead because they're smarter. This is simply the role that God gave them. And a humble husband will realize that. And can you guys imagine leading something yourself, not because you were particularly an expert in the area, but simply because you were asked to do it? Wouldn't encouragement and support from the person you're leading be so helpful? So find ways to be encouraging and supportive. Also, be less, so be more encouraging and supportive, be less nagging, critical, and controlling. In the book of Proverbs alone, there are five Proverbs that talk about a quarrelsome or nagging wife. I think, I guess we have this tendency. So we might cover it up with some cute words like, I'm just helping. I'm just keeping our family going. But so often our help is our way of controlling or making sure something gets done the way we want it to get done. So before you help your husband in these ways, just ask yourself these two questions. One, am I speaking up about a preference or a necessity? Like, does he have to put the kids to bed in one and only one specific way? Does the dishwasher have to be loaded in one and only one specific way? Ask yourself, is it a preference or a necessity? And then second, ask yourself this, what's the worst thing that could happen if I don't say anything at all in this situation? Like, if you don't remind him about his dentist appointment for the fifth time, what is the worst thing that could happen? He doesn't get his teeth cleaned? What's the worst thing that could happen? 
Just work on it. Work on being less nagging, less controlling, less critical. And then finally, watch out for your tone of voice and your choice of words. I'm telling you, this is a key in being supportive, being a supportive and loving follower instead of a bossy and critical leader in your marriage. And don't we say this to our kids all the time? It's not what you say, but how you say it. So as much as you can, I just want to encourage you tonight to think before you speak. Saying something with the right tone and the right words can make all the difference in just helping your husband to lead your marriage. Let me give you an example. Let's say your husband wants to buy a new car, okay? And you're concerned about the money for the new car. So how can you talk about it in a way that shows respect for his leadership, but also gives you an opportunity to be genuine and express your concerns? Because I am definitely not telling you to not do that. Well, if you say things like this, why would you want to buy a new car? Don't you realize our financial situation? There is nothing wrong with the car we have right now. Well, those kinds of things said in that kind of voice, it totally minimizes your husband's point of view. Immediately, whether you were trying to or not, you basically made him and his whole idea dumb. And maybe it is dumb, but maybe it's not. And if you say it in that way, you have not won, not in the conversation and not in the marriage. Instead, listen, ask follow-up questions. Don't immediately assume that your way is the best way. And then if you're still concerned, try saying things like this. Hey, hen, I would like to talk to you about this whole car thing. I've got some concerns. I'm concerned that buying a new car is not in our budget. How do you see that working out? I'm concerned that if we buy a car right now, we're not going to be able to pay for things that come down the road. What do you think about that? Personally, I'm pretty happy with the car we have right now, and I don't feel like we need a new one. Why do you feel like we need a new one? Speaking in this way, it gives dignity and validation to your husband and his perspectives. And it creates an environment where a real conversation about actually the purchase of a car can happen. Instead of a fight where both of you end up defending your positions, feeling misunderstood and unloved. So that's just a silly little example, but I'm encouraging you tonight, pay attention. Pay attention to your word choice and your tone of voice because these kinds of things, they can really help your husband and build him up as the leader that God made him to be. So once again, I'm a little overwhelmed. I don't know about you because following our husbands is not an especially easy task. Our pride, our self-centeredness, our independence, our critical nature, our desire to control our sin, it so often gets in the way. But remember, what God created marriages to be, Jesus can restore marriages back to by his gospel. Jesus lived out perfect submission to his father because we could never do that. We could never obey God perfectly, but Jesus did. And so now, because of what he did, we have the power to submit to our husbands and even a heart that can increasingly want to. So Jesus can restore our marriages to a place where husbands learn to lovingly and sacrificially lead their wives and where wives learn to lovingly respect and follow their husbands. Okay, 
To wrap this up, let's go back to the beginning. We started our time together looking at my little avocado tool, remember? And we were talking about how when you know what something is made for, you're going to use it best. And then we looked at what marriage was made for from Genesis 2.18. It's made to glorify God and it's made to form a deep community and marriage was made for two people to help each other. But I think it might be helpful for just a minute to point out what marriage was not made for. If marriage was made to glorify God, to make much of him, then that means marriage was not made to make much of itself. In other words, marriage is not the most important thing in life. God is. Marriage is not our greatest purpose. It's not our greatest goal or the thing that will make us whole. God is. Marriage is good. God is better. Marriage was made to glorify God. So if marriage was made to form a deep community of friendship and sexual intimacy, then marriage is not primarily for two people to do life back to back, meaning tackle life together as a team. That's good, but really, marriage is meant to be deep and personal and intimate, not exclusively functional and practical. And finally, if marriage was made for two people to help each other by living out their roles, that means marriage was not meant to be a place where two entirely self-sufficient people live their lives independently of one another, but under the same roof. Nope. Marriage is a place where we meet each other and we help each other and we help each other become more fully who God made us to be. And because of Jesus and his beautiful gospel, our marriages can look more and more like this as we trust in him. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary, please visit calvary.com. We hope to see you at our next growth night on the first Sunday of every month at 5.30 p.m. Thanks, church. God bless.